It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number six in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, March the 12th. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. First, I'll be talking to Australian-based Virus Global founder, Jackson Meyer. In its first year of operation, Virus Global has skyrocketed to global success, already generating a revenue of $30 million. An award-winning entrepreneur... Maya established Virus Global to bridge the gap between global giants and local small enterprises in Australian logistics. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what investors can expect in the market in the week ahead. And now, let's talk to Jackson Meyer. Well, uh, Jackson, your company's only been going for uh, uh, one year and you've already been listed in the Forbes 30 Under 30 Asia industry. Uh, tell us about it. How'd you get there? Pretty mind-blowing, to be honest. Um, did, certainly didn't expect to be here, but so we started Veris uh, in January 2019, and we started off with three offices, and since then uh, we've established ourselves across 14 locations across the world, including um, around China, Hong Kong, Australia, and the United Kingdom. Um, and fast forward, uh, we've had a pretty well, reasonably successful year, um, and we've got 53 staff members with us, luckily, um, and everyone's healthy to date, which is good. Uh, but yeah, that's where we finally are. <laughs> and uh, and so. Uh... You are a, an international freight forwarding company using cloud-based technology. Tell us about that. How does it work? That's correct. So it's not it's not a very exciting industry, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I thought that there was a little bit of a niche within the industry itself. Obviously, it's a very saturated market, particularly in Australia and China. Um, in Australia alone, we have 700 um, competitors. So, 
in order for us to kind of stand out, I thought we had to do something a little bit different and obviously quite lucky enough in our day and age that we're able to utilize cloud-based technology in order for our business to run. It's obviously a lot more cost-effective than having things such as servers and the like. So we've um, we instilled that from day one and we're able to not inherit any legacy ERP systems. And from there, we're just kind of, you know, always looking at ways to leverage um, our tech and automation. So, yeah, we're pretty lucky to, to have that driven from the top down, which is nice. So how does it work? Well, so, um, for instance, obviously all of our emails, you know, internally and externally run via Microsoft 365, it's obviously a cloud-based um, tech system. Uh, our EDI or ERP platform is also via, oh, sorry, hosted by the cloud. So all of our users across all of our 14 locations, um, 53 staff, wherever they are, they can just log on to um, our ERP and, and get to work. So that's really good. In terms of how our customers leverage off um, our cloud system, we have a data integration platform which we run with a fair few of our customers now and that's hosted via Microsoft Azure. So Microsoft Azure is a hosting platform for this whereby we essentially I guess run different series of purchase orders through our customers platforms and then you know reiterate the information straight back into our ERP. So tell us a bit your customers who are they? Yeah, it's a good question. I'd love to disclose it, but I can't. We have a series of different customers. We're lucky enough not to be very exposed to a certain industry. We do have a particular interest in industries such as stationery, plastics, resins, building and construction, and those kinds of things. And, you know, I'm very, very thankful that we've been able to, you know, sign um, and partner with a series of blue chip customers that are listed not only on the Australian stock market, but also the New York Stock Exchange. So there's a real mix. Um, and we've also got smaller customers as well, which we don't take for granted. And they range from, you know, mum and dad companies who import maybe one or two containers per annum right through to your big players. Which is your biggest market? At the moment, it'd have to be building and construction, particularly heading into Australia. Um, obviously, after the travesty of what was unfolding in Australia with, you know, the bushfires, there's a lot of, you know, work going into repairing and reconstructing a lot of the areas that were damaged. So, you know, there's certainly been a, a bit of a spike within that market where we hadn't seen prior. But prior to that, uh, would definitely be stationary. Stationary is a very big market for us. You know, it's a, it's a good market in terms of, you know, there's a series of different uh, areas in which we import from, obviously being, you know, Asia, also the United States, as well as, as Europe as well. So it's, a, it's nice. How many competitors do you have in this cloud space? <laughs> in the cloud space? I'm not too sure. Like, you know, we don't really take much of a notice to what our, um, sorry, what our competitors are doing. It's not something that is obviously specific to my business in order for us to kind of sell. It's something that is certainly offered elsewhere sure that many people are capitalizing on you know the opportunities that are actually right in front of them if that makes sense so i guess we were pretty lucky in the fact that we were able to commence with again as i mentioned before no legacy erp platform so all of our customers and clients and internal staff members are actually able to kind of build a platform um, and a system that actually works best for them instead of trying to work around a system that's been you know, in place for 10 to 15 years. That's quite extraordinary. And, uh, and, and your customers are quite okay with that? Your customers are quite across the technology? Yeah, look, to be honest, we, it's a really good question. Um, when you do look back at it, obviously there's a lot of trust and faith that goes into, um, you know, backing a cloud-based technology that potentially may not work. Obviously it is um, proven and there are testimonies to the, to the systems itself. But you know, we find that when we're actually building these systems, we have our IT people speak to their IT people, and usually they're really invested in trying to, you know, benefit not only their business, but also, I guess, the business moving forward, and they know that it is the way of the future. If we can 
cracking now. Obviously, there are going to be a few hiccups here and there. There are going to be some teething problems. But if everyone's understanding of that situation, there is a massive buy-in, buy-in from, you know, ranging from management right through to, you know, your warehouse staff who are actually using it as well. The key here would be the uh, efficiency and transparency, wouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, it's, for instance, everything that my staff um, input into the system is automatically correlated to our to our customers. So that's something that, you know, we would like them to see, although it, it does expose us a little bit if we do make a mistake. But it, it's really important that our customer sees that, you know, we're adding value to their business by not only trying to save the money through analysing the supply chain, but also, you know, stop rekeying stuff that doesn't need to be keyed in again, um, you know, really trying to enhance the business processes uh, as well as, I guess, time management. Do you use blockchain at all? No, we don't know this stage. Certainly something I want to look into. But I don't think because what we're doing at the moment, it is quite simple in terms of moving stuff from A to B. You know, if I know that they're looking at it quite heavily in, in Europe and the US, but I just don't think that it would be too suited to the Australian market as like as of today. It's certainly something that needs to be looked at. Certainly, because it's uh, it, blockchain is very big on transparency. It is. It is massive, massive. Also about you know, track and trace and those kinds of things. And where is your biggest market geographically? Uh, definitely China. China to Australia. That's our, that's our major market. Um, and also China to the UK. So as you would have seen on the news, both China, China to Australia and China to the UK, those markets aren't doing too well at the moment, which is um, a bit of a bit of an issue. But uh, there's not much you can do, is there? Coronavirus is obviously a very unfortunate circumstance and something that wasn't able to be foreseen. So we've just got to kind of you know, roll with the punches and come out, obviously, the other side. And how are you finding that? Certainly challenging. Uh, we were reasonably exposed to the, the peak of the um, coronavirus in China with obviously having, you know, seven officers there and 40 staff members. So we kind of knew that this wasn't something that was like the flu. It was obviously a serious issue. And, you know, the follow-on effects of that and what that would create in terms of the business arm and our customers in terms of Australia and the UK would be, would be felt for a long time. So we're reasonably geared up in order to predict what's to come. But again, it's just kind of dealing with the uncertainty and what's going to happen moving forward in Australia and trying to... Being a global company, yeah. first, where are you based and where are your staff? I'm, uh, I'm based in Melbourne. I'm based in Melbourne. So my staff are across uh, 14 locations. So we've got Melbourne, uh, Sydney, Shanghai, Qingdao. I can go on for a while, but um, yeah, we've got seven in China. Uh, we've got one in Hong Kong and then four in the UK and two in Australia. So they're all over the place, but primarily... Uh, the bulk of our staff are based in China, so across the seven stations there. And uh, and th- and that's fine. They're fine with that. Yeah, look, they're um lucky enough. We didn't actually have anyone who was um, struck down with the virus, but they're all kind of a bit nervous as to what is going to happen to the the family members. Not only obviously their direct family members, but the virus family as well. So you know we're consistently checking up on each other uh, across a series of different office locations and making sure that everyone's alright and stuff like that. So it's just kind of it is a bit unnerving, particularly when. It really struck down China and we had, you know, we had staff that returned to their hometowns uh, during Chinese New Year and, and they actually couldn't get back to, to the office or, you know, back to where they're actually living, you know, being Shanghai or something like that. So that was quite stressful, but lucky enough, they're all under control now, which is great. And I believe you, in your first year, you generated something like $24 million in revenue. Is that right? That, that is correct. That is correct. That is extraordinary. That is extraordinary. So what are your plans for the future then? To be honest, it's um, it's really about – our first year was about laying the foundation in order for our group to really leverage off and move forward with. So it was about establishing our office locations, getting our staff in place, getting our procedures, getting our systems in place. Um, and then this year was about 
you know, enhancing the systems, um, leveraging off our existing customer base and targeting, I guess, industries that we thought, you know, we would kind of fit well with based on, you know, integrating and stuff like that with similar customers last year. So moving forward, you know, in terms of revenue predictions, you'd be double, if not triple. But obviously with the coronavirus situation, it's quite hard to see, or sorry, see what's going to happen. Um, you know, are we going into complete lockdown here in Australia or are we going to keep going in stage three as it is in Victoria at the moment? Who knows? Well, we'll watch it with great interest. Yeah. Jackson, uh, fascinating talk to you and congratulations and keep going. Thanks, Leon. Much appreciated. And now let's talk to ComSec Chief Economist, Craig James. Well, Craig, what's ahead in the market for the week starting the 15th? Well, I think there's two major um, focal points. The first is the Reserve Bank. It wouldn't be a normal week if we didn't have the Reserve Bank somewhere along the, the proceedings to be able to provide us with a degree of guidance. And what we've got is uh, the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, giving opening remarks to a conference, the Business Analytics Conference that's happening uh, sort of on Monday. So certainly we've got that to, to look forward to and see whether he drops anything a little bit further about or provides a little bit more, more information about rising bond yields and how serious he sees that as a, as a risk to our economic re- recovery. Uh, we've got minutes of the last Reserve Bank board meeting that happens on, on Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, we've got one of the Reserve Bank uh, officials, uh, Kent, Christopher Kent, uh, giving a discussion to the Australian Financial Industry Association. So a fair bit to watch out for the Reserve Bank. Uh, to cap it all off, we've got the Reserve Bank Bulletin, which has a lot of topical argue, uh, articles, you know, sort of, and uh, certainly look out for anything which is special coming out from the Reserve Bank on, on Thursday the 18th. Uh, apart from the Reserve Bank, uh, it's all about jobs. So we'll have the, the, the job figures coming out for the um, month of uh, uh, February. They're coming out on Thursday. It has been quite remarkable in terms of the job market. We've seen you know, significant gains in jo- jobs over the last eight months. Now, the January figures were only up by 29,100, but there were stellar gains in the previous couple of months. If we look at the, the past eight months, we've seen something like 814,000 jobs created, yeah, a phenomenal figure in the space of eight months, and it just highlights the, the V-shape that we're seeing in a lot of the economic data. If you look at April and May, though, jobs were down by 872%, so that highlights that V-shape down by almost 900,000 jobs in April and May, then bouncing back over the following eight months. So we're looking for another solid rise in terms of jobs for the, uh, the month of February. And um, let's see whether we can get that unemployment rate down again. It's at 6.4%. Certainly we'd like to see that closer to 6% than where it is at the moment. Uh, yes, and uh, but uh, there are warnings that uh, we're probably going to be from the Reserve Bank saying we're probably going to be at, at that high level for some time. I mean, the Reserve Bank has actually their last statement, they said they would have interest rates on hold at 0.1% for the next three years, at least. Yeah, well, certainly there's no promises there. That's more or less a belief by the Reserve Bank Governor that uh, it's going to take some time for the uh, the recovery to really uh, sort of crystallise itself in terms of the jobless rate falling from below 6% and going, going further. So the Reserve Bank view is that there's still going to be a lot of fat in the system, yes, a lot of spare capacity. Now, I suppose the, the thing that we need to keep in focus is the, the speed of the recovery that we're seeing to, to date. Even the Reserve Bank has indicated that this 
current economic recovery is going a lot quicker and a lot stronger than they had already expected. So uh, the, the commitment at the moment from the, the Reserve Bank is that it'll be three years before we start to see interest rates rise. Now, a lot of people in business at the moment, I speak to people right the right way around the country from the West Coast to the East Coast, a lot of businesses at the moment are seeing some rise in input um, cost inflation, some cost inflation, and uh, they're a little bit um, more sceptical about the interest rates for remaining super low for that three-year period. That's interesting. That's interesting. So uh, where are the inputs coming in in terms of inflation? Well, you're seeing it in the, the building sector. So demand for um, labour, demand for, for materials in the building sector. This year, it's likely that we're going to be building the, the, the biggest number or the highest number of um, freestanding houses that we've ever done in Australia. So certainly that um, home builder package, some of the state packages in terms of housing, uh, really fired up uh, growth in terms of construction. So um, it's um, construction materials. Um, we've got a lot of engineering uh, projects underway at the moment as well. And then you have to look at anyone who uses um, uh, copper, aluminium, tin. Um, we look at the iron ore price. We look at the oil price. Um, we see some um, uh, commodity prices doing you know, so remarkably well. And uh, that does reflect the fact that we are seeing stronger levels of activity, uh, but also the expectation that we are going to see stronger levels of activity across the, the globe uh, as the vaccines work through uh, economies and start to the, the reopening process. Right, okay. I mean, that, that would be quite... I mean, the, and the reopening process will be key, won't it, for Australia? Well, certainly here in Australia, we could already say that, yes, Australia is very much open for, for business, but um, the lockdowns have been, yes, so much more significant. Of course, they've gone in second, third, fourth phases in many other parts of the world, such as um, some of the states in the United States and so, some of the uh, countries in Europe. So we've had our hiccups, I suppose, in Australia, but now we're um, very much on the recovery path through, from the, um, the, the health crisis. And uh, now we're dealing with the economic crisis in, in a big way. So, uh, but... Um, yeah, the interesting thing is this awakening process, process across the, the globe. Uh, you start to see people return to their work, wanting to uh, get along with uh, significant projects like infrastructure projects. That creates demand for, for resources. Um, and uh, it's creating some inflation fears. That's why we're seeing bond yields lifting at the moment, because uh, fundamentally we've got um, people seeing that the recovery process is starting to, to, to work. That means greater demand for, for commodities. Commodity prices are rising. And as a result, um, uh, bond yields are rising on that uh, inflation threat. I think people are getting a little bit spooked, a little getting a little bit ahead of themselves. But these are the animal spirits at work, uh, as Keynes referred to you know, so many years ago. So uh, how would the bond yields be affected the Reserve Bank? Well, certainly it's uh, something that the Reserve Bank is watching very, very carefully. If these bond yields start to creep higher and that starts to um, slow down our growth of, um, or economic recovery, then the Reserve Bank will act quite smartly. It's already uh, come into the market and been um, buying bonds in exchange for, for cash and putting uh, fresh liquidity into the system and putting downward pressure on, on yields. So it can only do what it can do. Um, I suppose what we've also got to highlight, the fact that this is a normal part of... Um, our economies respond. Uh, if you've had a period of um, uh, slowdown, you've, you've got significant stimulus. 
eventually you get businesses and consumers responding to that stimulus. And that's what we're seeing at the, the moment. And uh, as a result, uh, there is expectations that we're going to see stronger economic recovery. If you have stronger economic recovery, you're likely to see higher um, prices. And that's what bonds are re referring to. But um, um, uh, the Reserve Bank will watch it very carefully. The other thing it will watch very carefully is the Australian dollar. Uh, if the Aussie dollar starts to creep up 80 cents and yes and above, um, it will um, look at that fairly carefully and see whether you know, there is a properly functioning market there, whether there needs to be some downward pressure put on the Australian dollar. But at the moment, what we can say is the Aussie dollar is, is well placed um, in terms of its, its current level because it's fundamentally underpinned by higher commodity prices. And of course, the Aussie dollar put on a bit uh, with our uh, better than expected GDP numbers at 3.1%. Well, certainly um, you've got um, all factors supporting the Aussie dollar at the moment. You've got uh, the re uh, reopening of economies across Europe and the United States, and that's leading demand for higher commodity prices, and that provides its support. And then you have a look at the economic um, data that we have here in Australia, that uh, super solid rebound that we had in the economic growth, 3.1% in the December quarter, 3.4% in the September quarter, the biggest uh, rebound that we've ever seen in terms of the quarterly records going back to 1959. We know in terms of the job market, the job market continues to improve. And uh, as we've been referring to, these job figures are coming out on Thursday. We hope to see that the, the leading indicators, things like skilled vacancies, they're rising. Job ads are at the highest levels in 28 months. We're hoping to see that being manifested in terms of that job, more jobs being created and the jobless rate coming down. So uh, certainly uh, there's a degree of optimism happening in Australia. Um, there's some challenges out there as well. There's mutant strains of um, the virus that we've got to guard against. We've got to get that vaccine rolled out. But um, um, as the treasurer would say, yeah, so which country would you want to be at this current time? And he says, well, look, you clearly want to be in Australia. Indeed. And uh, and so, I mean, the issue too is that uh, one of the lessons we're learning from each state, uh, West Australia, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, is that uh, even when you get down to zero uh, cases for 28 days or more, suddenly you'll get an outbreak and you'll have to go into lockdown again. And that's been the case in every state. Yes, and uh, I think uh, that approach, you know, sort of has worked very, very well because, you know, one case can become uh, two, can become four, can become eight very, very quickly. So uh, we've got to continue to guard against this, not be complacent, make sure that we keep up our defences because really the only time that we can let down our fences, uh, defences uh, completely is when we've got that um, uh, vaccination um, to uh, probably around about 60 or 70% of the population when we get down to, to that sort of level, then we can start to feel a little bit confident. But um, uh, of course, we can't open the borders until we have the same sort of assurances about what's happening in other parts of the world. Indeed. And uh, until we get those assurances that in other parts of the world are going, OK, our borders will remain shut. That's, uh, that's something to watch out for. Oh, it creates challenges. Um, certainly, the, that'll be in focus this week as well, because we have population figures for the September quarter coming out on, on Thursday the 18th. And uh, it'll be interesting to see you know, sort of what those figures are looking like, what sort of a level of natural increase in the population, births, less deaths we've got, and how much that's making up for, for the fact that we've got the, the borders closed. So of course, in lockdown period, 
what you tend to see nine months after that is you tend to see a bit of an explosion of births. So it might be a little bit early to see that in the September quarter figures, but um, um, certainly all the anecdotes suggest that uh, we are starting to see uh, sort of more babies being born and um, that creates um, uh, opportunities for the economy, particularly you know, sort of a lot of the retailers you know, sort of who uh, can benefit on uh, some extra bods being around the place. Well, Craig James, that's fascinating stuff. And thank you very much for your time. Not a problem at all. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion US stimulus program will boost the economic recovery from the coronavirus pandemic around the world, the OECD said on Tuesday. As it upgraded outlook for global growth, the Paris-based international organisation said it expected a stronger rebound from last year's historic recession than it forecast in November, mainly because of the rapid rollout of the COVID-19 vaccination programs in many countries and the increase in US stimulus spending. The scale of the Biden plan will add about one percentage point to global economic growth in 2021, Lawrence Boone, the OECD's chief economist, told the Financial Times. As a result, the global economy will expand by 5.6% this year, the OECD forecast on Tuesday, an upgrade of 1.4 percentage points from its November forecast. The stimulus bill, known as the American Rescue Plan, is one of the largest US government interventions in the economy of the post-Second World War era. Australia's exports to China hit a record high in January and February as the elevated iron ore price continued to undermine Beijing's sweeping trade retaliation campaign. The total value of China's imports from Australia rose 8.2% in the first two months of the year to $26.6 billion, according to data released by China's customs agency. This was up from $24.5 billion in the first two months of 2020, the previous record. The elevated price of iron ore and liquefied natural gas, Australia's two biggest exports to China, more than compensated for crippling strikes on wine, lobster, timber, barley, beef and even coal, Australia's third biggest export to China. And Australian business confidence has risen to its highest level since early 2010, driven by an improvement in business conditions as companies begin to hire and invest in new capacity. NAB's monthly business survey showed business confidence ticked four points higher to 16 index points in February, while business conditions returned to a multi-year high of 15 index points after slipping in January. The increase in confidence was broad-based, with all states and industries reporting gains, except for retail. And the Westpac Melbourne Institute of Consumer Sentiment increased by 2.6% to 111.8 in March, from 109.1 in February. The index is now just 0.2 points below the December level, which was a 10-year high. The main factors driving the index are improving economic conditions and prospects, both domestically and abroad, particularly as they relate to our labour market. Australia's success in containing COVID-19, the promise of vaccine rollouts bringing an end to the pandemic, and support from stimulatory government policies have all contributed to the sustained lift. And Energy Australia has confirmed the early closure of its Yalorn coal power plant in Victoria's Latrobe Valley by mid-2028. While the announcement may have surprised some of our people, its context did not. NG Australia Chief Executive Catherine Tunger told the media on Tuesday. A multi-million dollar support package will be offered to the plant's 500 workers and the company will build a utility-scale battery facility by the end of 2026. The new 350-megawatt battery will ease some of the stress on the power grid, although it will only be a fraction of the 1,480-megawatt capacity of the coal plant. The 1,480-megawatt Yalorn station in the Latrobe Valley supplies 22% of Victoria's electricity and 8% of the national market, but has been under pressure for several years as Australia's national power grid accelerates the transition to renewable energy. And Scott Morrison will tip another $1.2 billion into wage subsidies for apprentices and flag migration changes to fill areas of work 
workforce shortage, focusing on growing the economy as it emerges from the recession. Employers will be given at least $1.2 billion to hire 70,000 apprentices in the next year in an uncapped job creation plan the Morrison government hopes will avoid a youth unemployment crisis from the coronavirus pandemic. As many as 100,000 apprentices have been employed through the existing wage subsidy scheme, which was announced just five months ago in October. More than 30,000 new apprentices have been hired in New South Wales and almost 24,000 in Victoria under the initial phase of the program that subsidised apprenticeships in a bid to stem an anticipated tide of job shedding. And low interest loans and cash grants targeted directly at tourism-related businesses hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic will feature in a set rescue package to be unveiled by the Morrison government within days. Ahead of the $90 billion JobKeeper wage subsidy program in three weeks' time, the government has almost finalised elements of a special package that will include support for airlines, mum and dad tourist service operators and accommodation outlets. The package, which is being driven by new tourism minister Dan Tian and treasurer Josh Frydenberg, is being pulled together because the sector has been so badly affected by the pandemic. There's been a drop of $41 million domestic passenger airline flights over the past 12 months, with tourist operators hard hit by rolling state border closures. The closure of the international border has also affected parts of the country heavily dependent on overseas visitors. And Macquarie Real Assets and Infrastructure Management and Aware Super signed a $3.5 billion takeover deal for a telecom company, Vocus Group, following four weeks of due diligence. Vocus chairman Bob Mansfield said the board unanimously recommended that investors back the deal, which was in the best interest of the company, and stood up against other alternatives. And micro-apprenticeships in digital skills such as cyber security and web development would help bridge the growing gap between demand for expertise in new technologies and the lack of workers with relevant technical qualifications. The micro-apprenticeships would combine work experience with short online courses in specific digital skills that could be tailored to the needs of both learners and their employer, according to a new report from the Business Council of Australia. Governments, training providers and industry partners could develop a series of digital micro-apprenticeships that could address current chronic skill shortages and lay the groundwork for a more modular and flexible skills system in the future. The proposal forms part of a package of reforms to the vocational education and training sector that the BCA argues is needed for a rapid and sustainable economic recovery in the wake of COVID-19. In its report, Skills for Change, the BCA is also calling for the introduction of a national digital skills passport that documents education and training from high school to retirement. The skills passport, based on blockchain, would keep track of formal and informal learning, including micro-credentials and short courses. Micro-credentials, which are also called nano-degrees, teach a specific skill. Each credential can then be accumulated or stacked into larger qualifications and skill sets, which are recognised by employers. A recent report by RMIT Online estimated that Australia needs 156,000 new technology workers by 2025 to ensure economic growth in the wake of COVID-19 is not stymied by a lack of relevant skills. And a government pledge of close to half a billion dollars to launch an overhaul of the aged care sector has failed to rally the share prices of ASX-listed operators, with analysts warning future funding remains murky after the Royal Commission revelations. Shares in Japara Healthcare, Estia Health and Regis Healthcare all slid last week after the Aged Care Royal Commission's final 2,000-page report was released. The three companies opened lower on Monday before recovering slightly as the broader market rallied. Japara finished the session down 3.9% to $0.74, cents, while Estia gained 1.5% to $1.99 and Regis was up 3.3% to $2.02. Shares in Japara are down 75% over the past five years, while Regis and Estia have both dropped more than 60% since 2016. 
The listed providers had told investors at their half-year results in February they were eagerly awaiting the final report of the Royal Commission to Aged Care and the government's response to it, hoping its contents would help overhaul funding and focus on the viability of the sector. The 148 recommendations include sweeping reforms, including a new Aged Care Act, the introduction of a star rating system for facilities and a possible aged care levy for the funding of the system. The government has made an additional pledge of $452 million in additional funding. And the Financy Women's Index fell by 2.3 points, down minus 3%, to 74 points in the December quarter, reflecting the worst performing quarter since March 2013, as women experienced a lower employment recovery than men. The time frame for achieving equality increased to 101 years from a revised 100 years in the September quarter, based on the worst performing sub-index of unpaid work of the Women's Index. A stronger year for the appointment of women to ASX 2000 board positions by up 6 percentage points to 32.6%, and the best improvement in the gender pay gap up 13.4% since June 2018 helped drive the index higher and cushioned the December quarter employment growth shortfall. The Women's Index also showed it's expected to take 21 years to achieve equality in the national gender pay gap, 33 years in employment, 18 years in underemployment, 7 years for women on boards, and 38 years to close the gender gap in superannuation savings. Women account for just over a third of all managers in major companies, barely changed over 12 months, raising fears that gender fatigue is setting in among the top echelons of a corporate Australia. The paucity of women in leadership roles is also likely to limit the number of women promoted to chief executive in the coming years and hinder company performance, experts said. Among the top 20 companies, 36.1% of all managers, including CEOs, key management personnel, general managers, senior managers and other managers, were women in 2020, up from 35.6% in the year before, data from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency shows. In 2014, the proportion was 29.7%. Last year, only four companies in the ASX20, insurer Suncor, Bank Westpac, pharmaceutical giant CSL and shopping centre operator Centre Group had close to half their managerial positions filled by women. And two weeks after Treasurer Josh Frydenberg changed concessions granted to Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg on the federal government's media bargaining code that helped restore the social media giant's services in Australia, major news publishers Nine and News Corp are struggling to get Zuckerberg and his Facebook friends to pick up the phone to negotiate commercial deals. Nine is a publisher of the Australian Financial Review, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, while News Corp publishes The Australian, The Wall Street Journal and state-based tabloids such as Melbourne's Herald Sun and Sydney's Daily Telegraph. There is growing frustration and cynicism among local news media executives about the willingness of Facebook to bargain in good faith. Formal revenue payment deals with Google are within reach. Facebook appears a long way from agreeing to terms. Senior news media executives say commercial negotiations are further behind than before Facebook brazenly shut down news, medical, government and other community online pages in response to Australia's unique media bargaining code. And former domain boss Anthony Catalano has taken a controlling stake in Prime Media Group. The deal will result in Mr Catalano and business partner Alex Weislitz owning nearly 20% of the company. However, the deal will be subject to a review by the Australian Communications and Media Authority. If approved, the deal will give Mr Catalano, who is Chief Executive of Australian Community Media, a controlling stake in the company, bringing to an end a stalemate between the shareholders Bruce Gordon and Kerry Stokes over the company. Mr Catalano and Mr Weisslitz's WA Chest Investments will pay $4,245,109.65 for Mr Gordon's prime shares. And the world's largest fund manager, BlackRock, has incorporated climate change assumptions into its share trading strategy for the first time as it ratchets up action to confront global warming in a move set to weigh on companies without a clear path to net zero emissions. 
The influential US asset manager headed by Larry Fink has started to change its long-term forecast of risk and return, known as capital market assumptions, to reflect its view that climate change will become the biggest driver of valuation for assets such as shares. Energy and utility stocks are seen most at risk due to the greater climate focus, with tech and healthcare among the winners, in a move likely to ricochet through the fund manager's US $8.7 trillion investment pool. BlackRock, plans to focus on boosting its exposure to shares in developed markets over high-yield and emerging debt markets, where the energy and utility sectors face structural challenges. The move is expected to be felt across the ASX, which has a heavy exposure to mining and energy stocks and extend to some financial stocks. And metals and mining magnate Sanji Gupta faces a desperate race to refinance US $5 billion, that's $6.5 billion Aussie, and save 7,000 Australian jobs, including workers at Wyala Steelworks, after his main financier, headed by one-time Bundberg billionaire Lex Grinsell, plunged into administration. The businessman is under mounting pressure to find a new lender for the towering debt pile owed to Grinsell to keep his companies trading after he stopped payments to the financial high flyer in recent days. Behind the scenes, Mr Gupta's GFG alliance was seeking a temporary repayment standstill with Greensill, aimed at preventing its debts being called in, a move that could trigger the collapse of his global empire. Greensill formally appointed Grant Thornton as administrators to its Australian and UK arms over the past 24 hours, admitting the loss of an insurance company and the, co- and the consequent decision by banking giant Credit Suisse to wind down US $10 billion worth of funds associated with its financing activities had placed it in severe financial distress. And Qantas is going to court to try to stop a former executive from starting a new job at rival Virgin Australia until September. Former Jetstar Japan Chief Executive Nick Rawlack was recently named as Virgin's new Velocity CEO, with a May commencement date. Qantas's concern about his career change stemmed from the fact he was in line for a senior role at Qantas's own frequent flyer business and was privy to sensitive information. This included details of future expansion plans for Qantas loyalty, its strategy towards competitors, and detail on commercial terms with program partners. The legal action in the New South Wales Supreme Court aimed to force Mr Rawlack to honour a non-compete restraint period of six months on top of three months' notice. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to entertainment entrepreneur and public speaker Daryl Lovegrove about how his business is managing in the pandemic. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors economist Alex Joyner about how the economy is travelling. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBowDoubleZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.